Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's called How Do We Fix It? And it's hosted by Richard Davies and Jim Meggs. On How Do We Fix It? Richard and Jim talk to all kinds of thought leaders and experts and professors and researchers about how we fix problems, all kinds of problems, cultural problems and political problems and medical problems, any problem you can think of. You can find How Do We Fix It? by typing How Do We Fix It? podcast into Google, or you can go to their website, which is howdowefixit.me. You can also find How Do We Fix It? on Apple Podcasts. I really enjoy this podcast and I highly recommend it to you. And we'd like it so much that we're going to give you a, a little sample of what you'll hear there. The following episode is from How Do We Fix It? So we are at a big hotel here in New York with members of Heterodox Academy. They include college faculty and staff, a lively crowd, as you can hear. In this episode, we're going to hear from New York Times columnist and author David Brooks, who speaks about how his professors shaped the way he sees the world when he was a student and also today, and the potential for colleges now to improve our mental and spiritual health. Some serious stuff. Yet also, there are moments of humor. David Brooks. It's easy to demonize the wokening, and a lot of people do. But, you know, I, I did this piece maybe 15, 20 years ago called The Organization Kid about Princeton. And it was about how students never challenged their professors. Well, we're over that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's, on balance, a good thing. I think it's, you know... David Foster Wallace in that famous Kenyan address said, there's no atheists in life, we all worship something. And some of the spiritual yearnings come out as a political radicalism that can take a fanatical form, but it does grow out of a spiritual yearning. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Richard, with this episode, we have a different kind of show. We're not doing our usual interview. We're actually going to be discussing a speech. And we're at the annual conference of the Heterodox Academy, and they've partnered with us on a number of podcasts. And at this event, Jim, you were saying that I think there, there were seven people yeah, who were guests on, on How Do We Fix Megan It? Megan McCardle, Alice Drager, Deb Mashek from Heterodox Academy was there. Jonathan Haidt, who started Heterodox Academy, was one of our guests. So we kind of feel like we're at a community of people who are concerned about the same issues we do. So what kind of issues are we talking about? Well, just a reminder that Heterodox Academy is a, a group of people dedicated to diversity, viewpoint diversity at colleges, universities, and society at large. Yeah, and it's one that we've talked about a lot. And now it's interesting to see a whole host of organizations that are dedicated to this. So we're here at this event. You may hear some rattling and stuff moving around in the background. Yeah, little room noise. Uh-huh. And, and before we hear from David Brooks, social psychologist Jonathan Haidt 
author of the best-selling book, The Coddling of the American Mind, and another guest on How Do We Fix It, spoke about the work of this group. It means a way of moving through a volatile world with habits of heart and mind that enable constructive engagement across lines of difference. It means being curious and intellectually humble, being constructive, not sarcastic. It means welcoming and embracing critics because they make you smarter. So that's what we're all about. That's what we think the Academy should be about and is about at its best. There were also awards presented by Deb Mashek, who heads up Heterodox Academy. They gave awards to a number of thinkers, including a young writer named Coleman Hughes, who I've been following for a long time, who's, I think, a real rising star. But all the awards had this theme of how do we reward people who stand up for open communication, free thought, free inquiry, and the importance of real, honest debate. So you and I, Jim, will be back later in this podcast for our response to to what David Brooks said. And I'm not sure how much we can add, but uh, he started off his speech by talking about his student days at the University of Chicago. And then when I was 18, the admissions officers at Columbia, Wesleyan and Brown decided I should go to the University of Chicago. Um, So... Uh, and my favorite saying about Chicago, the one everybody knows, which is not true, which is where fun goes to die. Um, but the one I love is it's a Baptist school where atheist professors teach Jewish students St. Thomas Aquinas. And so that's, that was the atmosphere I was put into. And I fell into the atmosphere. I had a double major there in, in history and celibacy while I was there. Um, and this about his weekly appearance on PBS NewsHour. I do a segment called Shields and Brooks. We wanted to call it Brooks Shields. That would have been better. And we appeal to a certain upper-middle-brow, somewhat elderly audience. Um, So if a 93-year-old lady comes up to me in the airport, I know what she's going to say. I don't watch your show, but my mother loves it. And so that's... um, We're very big in the hospice community. Um, And then the serious bit of David Brooks's speech began with concerns about liberal education. We've edited parts of what he said, beginning with student life at the University of Chicago. But as I get older, the thing I appreciate more is the seeds that were planted by my university and the seeds that can be planted by people at a university to change a life forever. And so I went to Chicago back at a time when my Yale colleague, Anthony Cronman, calls the humanistic ideal was shaping higher ed. And the humanistic ideal is that a university's mission is teleological. It's to shape the character and the souls of the people who go through that. There was a guy in the 1920s named J.F. Roxborough who worked at the Stowe School where he was headmaster, and he said his job at Stowe was to turn out young men who were acceptable at a dance, invaluable at a shipwreck. And I've always admired that as a way to think about changing character. Or as an old Spartan said, I make honorable things pleasant to children. And a lot of what teachers do is they take something excellent and they make it pleasurable to young person. Now, the humanistic ideal is no longer prevalent in a lot of universities. It is in some, but not in many. And it has been replaced, Cronman says, by the research ideal. And the research ideal has done a lot for us. It's based on the idea of specialized knowledge. You specialize fields down to small bits, and you can expand truth through that. And we've had many great breakthroughs because we have specialized. But, according to Cronman, 
This emphasis on specialization draws our attention away from the whole of our lives and requires that we focus on small aspects of them itself. Big questions like what makes life worth living began to seem not only unrealistic, but irresponsible and pernicious, almost unprofessional to ask. My friend and colleague, and actually third cousin, Steven Pinker of Harvard, uh, wrote, I have no idea how to get my students to build a self or become a soul. It isn't taught in graduate school and in the hundreds of faculty appointments and promotions I've participated in. We've never evaluated a candidate on how well he or she could do it. And that's a reasonably cogent argument. But my view is if you leave students on their own to do that, with no guidance on the hardest question of life, you're asking for trouble. And schools have no choice but to get in this business. And my professors at Chicago took advantage of this. When I was there, there were still some refugees from World War II who had escaped Nazi Germany and taught Kant and Hobbes and Thucydides as if the sacred crowns of humanity were contained in these pages. And if you read them well, you would know how to live. And there's a saying, if you catch fire with enthusiasm, people will come for miles to watch you burn. <laughs> and my professors had that enthusiasm. And those of us who have prepared passionate lectures or conversations or seminars with students realize that sometimes you pour into the class more than the student is ready to receive because they're just too young. But I do think you are planting seeds, and I think I'm walking testimony of that, of the seeds that were planted. When I think of what my professors did at Chicago, I think they did six things. First, they took us and they welcomed us into a tradition of scholars, a long line of men and women who were in this conversation, a conversation Michael Oakeshott said, is an endless, unrehearsed intellectual adventure in which, in imagination, we enter a variety of modes of understanding the world and ourselves are not disconcerted at all by the differences or dismayed by the inconclusiveness of it all. And we were just little peons in this conversation, but we were entered into it. The second thing they do is they introduced us to the history of the world's moral ecologies. We often tell students, think for yourself, come up with your own worldview. And if your name is Nietzsche or Aristotle, maybe you can do that. The rest of us need help. And so, but we're the lucky inheritors of all these moral ecologies, the classical moral ecology that emphasizes glory and honor, the Hebraic one emphasizing obedience to law and strictness of conscience. The Christian one emphasizing humility, surrender, and grace, the Enlightenment conscious project based on reason, Gnosticism, Buddhism, Confucianism, African animism, Marxism, they're all these inheritances. And they didn't tell you which one to pick, but they said, here they are. See what fits. And that proved to be tremendously valuable. The third thing they did was they taught us how to see. Now, seeing reality seems like an obvious thing. You open your eyes and you look at the world. But I look at politics, I work in politics, and nobody sees reality clearly. They see the reality they want to see based on their prejudices and their self-interests. Seeing well is not natural. It's an act of humility, and it is taught. It is taught by copying people who know how to see well. Da Vinci, George Eliot, George Orwell, Jane Jacobs, James Baldwin, Leo Tolstoy. You see how they saw. John Ruskin once wrote, the greatest thing a human soul ever does in this world is to see something and tell what it saw in a plain way. Hundreds of people can talk for one who can think, but thousands can think for one who can see. Orwell was just a great seer. Tolstoy was a great seer. He has this, got a scene in Anna Karenina where there's a girl, Kitty, who's going off to a ball. He describes what it felt like when she put on her velvet choker 
what it felt like when her hair was perfect, her dress was perfect, what it feels like to be an 18-year-old girl at the top of her game, what it feels like to see the man she thinks she's going to marry, Vronsky, looking at, at, at the ball in rapturous love, and then what it feels like when Vronsky is not looking at her, he's looking at Anna Karenina, and what it feels like to have her whole inside sucked out. And Tolstoy just can see that reality with such clarity and can communicate it. That is such a skill. Fourth, our professors taught us intellectual courage. There's no such thing as thinking for yourself. Even the words we think with are collective things. And most of us don't think for truth, we think for bonding. We want to believe the things that will make us admitted into the right social circles. And so you have to be taught to go against that and think for truth some of the time. And our professors, by encouraging us to scream at each other in a civil way, encouraged us to seek truth. Fifth, they gave us emotional knowledge. To read Whitman as he exults in joy, to follow Galileo as he follows his discoveries wherever they might lead them, to be with Pascal as he encounters God, or Sylvia Plath as she encounters the depths of madness, is not to have new fact, but is to have had a new experience, and is to have had the repertoire of your emotions widened a little. I once saw Taylor Swift interviewed on 60 Minutes And somebody said to her, your songs are sad. And Taylor Swift said, well, there are really 22 different kinds of sadness. There's your boyfriend dumps you sadness, and she plays a song. There's you lost your dog sadness, a different song. Your mom is mad at you sadness, a different song. Taylor Swift is an expert at sadness. Who would want to go through life with one kind of sadness or one kind of happiness when you could have 22? And you can only do that by having the experiences that art and uh, emotional wisdom pass along to you. Sixth, Chicago gave us new things to love. And I think this is mostly what universities do. They put love in front of students, things that students find beautiful and they want to follow along. Some of you probably know Plato's Ladder of Loves, where Plato advises when you're teaching the young, put a beautiful face in front of them. And they'll be attracted to a beautiful face, but they'll realize there's even a higher beauty, which is a beautiful personality. And then if you show them a beautiful personality, they'll realize there's an even higher beauty, which is a beautiful society, which is justice. And if they see that beauty, they'll realize there's an even higher beauty, which is truth and the search for truth. And then they'll realize there's a higher beauty still, which is the transcendent beauty of the universe to which nothing can be added and nothing can be taken away. And so you walk students up the ladder of loves and you give them new fields to love, new people to love, and you arouse in them sort of an erotic atmosphere around ideas. I once was sitting in the Regenstein, which is the Library of Chicago, possibly the ugliest building on the face of the earth. And I was reading Nietzsche, and I started at 7, and I woke up, I was reading, but suddenly it was 11. I was not in myself at that moment, I was in the book. And the erotic atmosphere somehow sucked me in. And when you have that kind of experience... It's harder to be shallow and later in life because you've tasted the fine wine and the Kool-Aid just won't do. Rilke said in the midst of his education, I'm learning to see. I don't know why it is, but everything penetrates more deeply into me and does not stop at the place where until now it used to finish. I have an inner self of which I was ignorant. And the education I think I got introduced us to that inner self. It was somehow very impressive. And then the professors around us did something 
that encouraged us to work harder. One of my heroes is the scientist E.O. Wilson. And when Wilson was at Harvard, he had a professor and a mentor named Philip Darlington. And they were both bug scientists, and they collected samples. And Darlington said, don't collect your samples on the path. Cut through the jungle. Do it the hard way, but the right way. And one day, Darlington, the legend of Darlington, is that he was in the Amazon on a pond, floating on a log, collecting samples. And a crocodile got up and grabbed him and pulled him down. And he escaped. The crocodile grabbed him again, pulled him down. He escaped a third time. His, the right side of his body was shredded. He made it back to camp and back to safety. But as Wilson says or wrote, that's not what impressed him about Darlington. Anybody can get out of a crocodile. <laughs> what impressed him was that in a body cast with his right arm immobilized, he taught himself to go back into the jungle and collect his samples left-handed with one hand. And he did that for months. And that's what people want from their professors. They want to be taught that something is hard and it is worthy of hardness. Students don't want happiness, they want intensity. And so that's what you can get at a university, just an expansion. Now, do we give that all the time? I think a lot of the times we don't. And we don't help the students in the years after college. The students are so spiritually hungry. My students, the students at every college I go, and they want to know what is the highest and best life. And we hand them a bunch of great empty boxes a lot of the time. The first empty box we hand them is freedom. We tell them you should be free. Freedom leads to happiness. We give you your liberated self. Freedom doesn't help them define what the best life is. They got plenty of freedom. So then we hand them another big box of nothing, possibility. Your future is limitless. You can do anything you want. Be audacious. Take risks. Don't be afraid to fail. How does it help them to, to tell them things are limitless? How does that help them define what their best life is? So we give them another empty box, the box of authenticity. Look inside yourself. Find your true inner passion. You're amazing. Awaken the giant within. You do you. That doesn't help them either. The you is the thing that isn't formed yet. So we give them the biggest and emptiest box of all, the box of autonomy. You're on your own. It's up to you to find your own values. No one else can tell you what's right or wrong for you. Do what you love. And they're cast out in the world without any guidance. And a lot of my students are great students. They got into Yale. But they wander. And some of them wander into what Kierkegaard called an aesthetic life. They want to have life as a series of adventures, which is um, where each adventure is fun. And they measure their life by aesthetic criteria. Is it interesting? Is it boring? And that's great for them for a little while. Uh, but eventually they get bored of it because it's not accumulating into anything. Others lead a life of what a, guy, a writer named Matthias Dahlgaard called an insecure overachiever. They want to solve the problem of insecurity, and Goldman or McKinsey tells them junior year, we know what you're going to do for the next three years. So their heart may not be in it, but they go into Goldman because they're good at getting into things. So they treat life as an extension of school. They just get into prestigious brands. And then they follow that life, and pretty soon the deepest questions of life, which used to animate them in college, get replaced by the shallower questions of how do I succeed? And you, you can let drop those spiritual questions that used to obsess you, and you become a little more of a shrewd animal. As Dahlgaard says, you have a problem in the foundation of your life, and you think you can solve it by building a shiny new story up on top. 
And eventually, whether it's the aesthetic life or whether it's the insecure overachiever life, they hit a sort of valley, a psychological valley. Nietzsche said, he who has a why to live for can endure anyhow. He who has a why to live for can endure anyhow. If you don't know your why, when the setbacks come, you begin to crumble. And I get them, and maybe you do too from the students a few years later. And their tone of voice is so different, they've been hit by this a mental health problem. And their confidence is shot. And I had a friend named Casey Gerald who was getting interviewed for a job. And instead of just answering questions, he asked the interviewer a question. And it was a very good question. What would you do if you weren't afraid? And she started crying because she wouldn't be doing HR at that company if she wasn't afraid. <laughs> My old professor, Alan Bloom, said everything is, is relative on campus and it creates men without chests. It creates a sort of bourgeois blandness. I think that turns out to have been wrong. And Hannah Arendt was more right when she said that all forms of fanaticism come from existential anxiety. If you're existentially anxious, you don't turn into a boring last man, you turn into a fanatic and a nut. And that's because you're trying to find some way to belong. The psychologists have a phrase, the hardest thing to cure is the patient's attempt to self-cure. And the attempted self-cure of loneliness is tribalism. Tribalism seems like community, but in fact, it's the opposite of community. Community is based on a mutual love for something, your town, your school. Tribalism is based on a mutual hatred of something, some other. And you get the tribalism that flows out of a spiritual void. And we see a lot of that in politics and a lot of that on campus. And so that's the problem put before us. The solutions will come from people like in this room who are willing to engage the deepest issues in the deepest ways. The solutions will come from the spiritual hunger, which never goes away. One of my students who unfortunately died at a tragically young age, I remember we had coffee once, his name was John Haratunian, and he leaned over to me and said, we're so hungry. The spiritual hunger is so palpable. And then the final reason the students will come was a kind of heterodoxy I see in students where I visit all around the country, and it's in their backgrounds. And you probably have these students, they've got all these weird backgrounds. They're like part French, they're part Costa Rican, They've just come from all these diverse places, and they don't only admire pluralism, they embody pluralism. They have all these completely different backgrounds. They were the uh, Syrian uh, who wound up in a community college in Ohio, a woman who grew up in a Baptist home in Alabama, now a first-generation college student in, in an Ivy League school. They transcend worlds, and they don't only admire heterodoxy, they are heterodox. I could come to think of them as amphibians. And we talk about the fragility of the young, and that's true. But a lot of the students that we all have have made e pluribus unum their life mission because they've taken so many opposites in their background and they've created something special in themselves. And their heterodoxy, their respect for bridging capital, their re respect for finding narratives that give an integrity to a diverse life are some of the things that are going to lead us out of the craziness that John described. Thank you. So that was David Brooks at his speech to the Heterodox Academy. Jim, you and I will be back in just a moment to talk about some of the things he said after his speech and our reaction to them. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Now, back to the dessert course.
after the speech, he took questions and he praised student protests as a kind of moral awakening, which, I, which might have surprised you. I thought it was a really smart take, actually. It's easy to demonize the wokening, and a lot of people do. But, you know, I, I did this piece maybe 15, 20 years ago called The Organization Kid about Princeton. And it was about how students never challenged their professors. Well, we're over that. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's, on balance, a good thing. I think it's, you know, David Foster Wallace in that famous Kenyan address said, there's no atheists in life, we all worship something. And some of the spiritual yearnings come out as a political radicalism that can take a fanatical form, but it does grow out of a spiritual yearning and a yearning to do good. Mm -hmm. And so that, to me, is actually a good sign. And sort of the, the worst student is the just the materialistic, inert one, uh, not the one who's screaming at you. They're at least alive. But now the moral lens is, is fully alive on campus. And I think on balance we should be deeply appreciative of that and that the students are finally feeling free to do that. All my life I've wanted a kid to come up to me and say, you know, I, was really, I wanted to major in accounting, but my parents are forcing me to major in art history. And... <laughs> That'll like never happen because it's always the kids who have the spiritual yearnings and the parents who want to damp that down. There's been so much talk about, you know, speakers being deplatformed or driven off of colleges because of their ideas. But Brooks talked about something I thought was really important, which was the greater cost of ideological conformity on campuses isn't because that some right wing guy doesn't get to give a speech. It's with the students. And then another highlight for me, Jim, was when he talked about the power of persuasion. People always say we need to hit them harder. Like, when have you ever been persuaded by being hit harder? I get persuaded when I meet somebody I think is really admirable. I get persuaded by somebody who seems to be reasonable and seems like an admirable person and thinks that. And I get persuaded by pleasure. The best way to be a good conservative is to be an enjoyable person. And it gives credibility to your cause. And I just, I've never been persuaded by incivility. I actually had a friend over at my house, and we were talking about reparations. I'm pro-reparations. And um, so she said to me, she saw an Abraham Lincoln book on my bookshelf. And we were agreeing on everything. And then she said to me, you know, I think Abraham Lincoln was guilty of worse genocide than Adolf Hitler. And she was talking about the Lincoln's treatment of the Native Americans. And A, she didn't know her history. Like, Native American policy was terrible. But it was terrible before Lincoln. It was terrible after Lincoln. He was busy with the Civil War. But I felt this white-hot heat. And I would have disagreed with her about everything at that moment. And so just as a matter of persuasion, I just, you know, we talk about, like, going into war, it's good to hit him harder. Going into conversation, is it really good to hit him harder? Mm. I don't think I've ever been persuaded by getting hit in the face. Another thing was David Brooks answering a question that I've asked myself for years, which is, why is it that politicians rarely, if ever, admit that they're wrong? I mean, isn't it attractive to admit that that you've learned something from experience? I thought his comments on this were sobering and something he has surely learned from experience. I was the supporter of the Iraq War, and then roundabout... 2007, I like realized that wasn't a really good idea. <laughs> uh, and so I had sleepless nights, real torture. And I finally wrote a column, a really confessional column of what I got wrong. 
And what I learned at that moment was that when you convert in that way, your friends feel betrayed and your enemies feel emboldened. And they seize upon your vulnerability and they attack you for it. And so there's a reason why politicians never admit error. It's not because they don't know they haven't committed errors, but it's a total killer from both sides. I just love what, what David Brooks said about walking students up the ladder of love. Well, he's quoting Plato there about how you introduce people to higher and higher ideas. And you start with beauty and you work your way up the ladder to truth. And, and he called it this almost erotic atmosphere of yeah. ideas. So he gets that from Alan Bloom, who was yeah. the guy who wrote The Closing of the American Mind. I didn't know that Bloom had been one of his professors at the University of Chicago. But this notion that the deep engagement with ideas is a kind of transcendent and, and, and also erotic experience, I just very moving. He spoke about that in a very moving way, and it kind of made me want to go back to college. <laughs> and, then when he was, and then he really had me when he started talking about reading Nietzsche and losing himself reading Nietzsche. I actually wrote my senior thesis in college on Nietzsche, you know, a very difficult thinker who said a lot of horrible, horrible things, and yet – and engaged person should be able to read a thinker who's wrong about a lot, write about other things, and learn to make those distinctions. If we start trying to say, this whole group of thinkers is on the bad list, yeah. Um, yeah. we're, we're never... Off. But that's the way we're going too often. Mm-hmm. We're never going to learn anything. Hopefully, Brooks sets an example for a real kind of open-minded inquiry, discussion, engaging. Even he says, he sometimes he likes it when students yell at him. It's better than students who are bored. I love that. And that's our solution on how do we fix it. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer's Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. Always excited about ideas. Uh, If you want to make a podcast, then check us out at DaviesContent.com. As always, thanks for listening.